The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Francesca Wade. Francesca's new book, Square Haunting, explores the lives of five pioneering women that are linked by a square in Bloomsbury. From modernist poet H.D. to writer and publisher Virginia Woolf, all of these women worked and wrote in London between the two world wars, seeking space, independence and recognition. Eleanor Evans met Francesca at Faber's offices in Bloomsbury to find out more. So your book Square Haunting considers the lives of uh, five pioneering women um, connected by a certain area of London. And I wondered if we could just start by perhaps talking about the square that is central to your book. Yeah, um, well, the book is about five women who all lived at different times during the interwar period in Mecklenburg Square. Um, And Mecklenburg Square is this beautiful sort of Georgian gem on the eastern edge of Bloomsbury, backing onto Grays Inn Road, where it becomes Clerkenwell. The square was built around 1804 um, on land which was owned by the Foundling Hospital, which was one of kind of 18th century Bloomsbury's major landlords, along with the Bedford Estate. So the Foundling Hospital was opened by Thomas Coram, um, who wanted to start a home for children on the model of European foundling hospitals. Um, And he managed to raise the money to acquire this big plot of land in central London, which I think was a former dueling ground. And there was so much demand um, for the hospital that they pretty soon began to run out of money. Um, And eventually, after a lot of discussion about what it would mean for for the air pollution and so and so on and the effects on of the children of living in a built-up environment they decided to develop the huge estate that they had and build two residential squares um brunswick and mecklenburg squares um so mecklenburg square is is on the east side um and it took about 15 20 years um to build i think there was a there's a huge amount of correspondence about the quality of building materials and the debates about um you know how they were going to kind of sub-license dodgy contractors to build these mansions and was anyone going to want to live there um but eventually the square as we know it um was 
was finished with the garden um, in the middle, which largely remains unchanged. I think it's got some of the oldest trees in London and some of the flower beds are still the same. So Bloomsbury in the interwar period, um, I guess some listeners might have preconceptions of of what what that means, but can you give us a sense of what Bloomsbury was like at this time and what it meant for the people who lived there? Well, Bloomsbury has such an interesting kind of cultural history because I think people really associate it with the famous Bloomsbury group um, and people associate it now with you know being very central and um, very expensive Um, but in the kind of turn of the 20th century it was a very different situation because when Bloomsbury was originally laid out by the Duke of Bedford estate he had this vision that he would be developing a kind of upper middle class suburb um, where rich families would live Um, but by the time the area was finished any family who could afford a house there really wanted to live in West London in Mayfair or St James which was much much more fashionable so Bloomsbury became sort of derided as this kind of symbol of sort of I don't know aspirational middle class living it was definitely you know snobbishly it was seen as a you know not at all a cool place to live um and so some of these huge houses started to languish and be empty and eventually particularly on the foundling estate the bedford estate um held out for longer but the foundling estate which included mecklenburg and brunswick squares um decided that they had to do something about this and they had to divide up these houses into flats or boarding houses um and this development happened at an interesting time for women in particular where a lot of women you know were soon about to get about to get the vote a lot had um had universities had opened to women in the second half of the 19th century and so um it was a real time of change and new possibility for women who might not want to just go straight from their family home into a marital home but might want to have a period of living alone or living with a friend or moving to london to look for work um and so the these houses suddenly being available at relatively low rents um, happened at a time when a lot of kind of interesting, ambitious women were looking to move to Bloomsbury. Uh, and your book centres on on five of, of these women whose lives um, at some point or other converged in, in Mecklenburg Square. Can, can you introduce them for us? Yeah, Um The first chapter is about the poet Hilda Doolittle, who was known as HD. Um, She's a really fascinating figure. She was at one point was engaged to Ezra Pound when they were both living in America. Um, I think she was quite relieved when that engagement quite quickly um, broke down. But she did come to London um, quite soon after he'd come here um, and got very involved in the sort of poetic scene um, around him and which is where she met her husband Richard Aldington Um, and so she lived in Mecklenburg Square during a period of the First World War which was a particularly turbulent period for her because Aldington her husband was conscripted and he was away fighting and then coming home and having an affair with the upstairs lodger Um, meanwhile D.H. Lawrence and his wife um, who she knew a bit had been exiled from their house in Cornwall and they she sort of put them up um, in the square And at the same time, she was trying to work out her own position as a sort of wife on the home front and was doing that largely by looking back to Greek tragedy. She was a real um, Hellenophile and um, 
some of her most interesting poetry, I think, was written during this these difficult years. Mm-hmm. Then there's Dorothy L. Sayers, um, who is best known for her Lord Peter Whimsey detective novels. Um, and she was an interesting one to write about during this time because she's someone who later in life her books were complete bestsellers they're still in print she's really well known as one of the heroines of golden age detective writing along with people like Agatha Christie but I'm writing about her during a time when none of this seemed even possible to her she'd um, just graduated she was in the first batch of women to be allowed to graduate from Oxford and she arrived in the square really just knowing that she wanted to be a writer and was completely determined in that but wasn't really sure if the success that she wanted was ever going to be hers. And so this is the year when she was writing her first novel, uh, which became Whose Body. Um, Then there's the classicist Jane Harrison, who I'm writing about at a completely different time, right at the end of her life. Um, She was a really amazing figure. She was um, at Newnham in Cambridge, um, where her theories about the matriarchal origins of Greek religion were hugely controversial amongst the more conservative of her colleagues in the Cambridge Classics faculty. Um, And Cambridge, unlike Oxford, refused to allow women to take degrees. And eventually in 1921, she was so fed up of this that she left um, with Hope Murleys, her sort of partner who was a former student, and they went off to Paris. um, And then they came to Bloomsbury and they threw themselves into um, projects of Russian translation. She'd started learning Russian during the war um, and were involved in a whole circle of Russian emigres who'd been exiled after the revolution. Then there's the economic historian Eileen Power, who lived in the square for 20 years while teaching um, international history at the LSE. Um, And she's a really fascinating figure. She moved from writing her best-selling book, Medieval People, which is one of the first Pelican books. And she moved from that into doing a lot of work for international history. And um, as it became clear that another war was was on the cards, she um, really saw her job as a, as a historian to make sure that future generations would be taught history in a way that would make sure that they would consider themselves citizens of the world and not be able to kind of lead their countries into further wars. And the last chapter is about Virginia Woolf, who is by far the best known of any of these people. Um, but I'm writing about her at a at a interesting time of her life. I think it's the 19. She moved in just as the Second World War was declared, and she died in 1941 so this is the last year of her life but of course she didn't know it was going to be the last year of her life and I think it's often read as the year leading up to her suicide but in fact during this year she was full of exciting projects she was working on her novel Between the Acts she was writing a biography of her old friend Roger Fry and she was beginning to work on a memoir of her childhood as well um, as well as still being involved in the Hogarth Press which um, operated from their house in the square. Yes so they're all clearly incredible women and perhaps we can go into a little more detail about a few of their stories in a little while Um, but I wondered if we could just give a bit of extra context of at the beginnings of this period that you're writing about women's lives were changing fast at this time so how did they go about um, pushing those boundaries Mm. they all did it in different ways I guess I think um, 
one of the interesting themes of the book that connects quite a few of them is the changes in women's education. Um, so Dorothy Sayers was one of the yeah was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford, and I guess she arrived at university at a time when she and her friends could expect that they would be able to have a pretty different future from their mothers, for example. Um, whereas Jane Harrison, who is a kind of a generation older than most of the other women that I'm writing about, she was more of a pioneer and that she was one of the earliest students at Newnham at a time when the women students were really not included in the university and I mean even by the time that Sayers was at Oxford there are lots of stories about lecturers refusing to sort of turn turning their backs on the women students or really not wanting to see them in their kind of caps and gowns out in the streets of Oxford um, and I think Eileen Power and Jane Harrison as female academics had to contend with a lot of suspicion I mean Jane Harrison is an interesting story in that respect because she, after she left university, she spent most of her life trying to be accepted for a prestigious position um, and being rejected by generally by all male committees who just couldn't really countenance um, having someone like her um, in a within the establishment. But in a way, she turned that to her advantage. She, um, I think, the classical studies at that time were very focused on the kind of editing of canonical texts um, but she wasn't interested in that sort of work what she wanted to do was these huge broad brush pioneering works where she would just kind of smash through everything that anyone thought that they knew about um, about ancient religion and ironically because a lot of her theories have subsequently been proved to not be particularly accurate so a lot of her work then gets overwritten and superseded and she sort of has fallen out of history in some ways but no one could have done the work that they did after that if it weren't for her coming in with the imagination to put together these theories which may not be entirely accurate but still open doors and ways of thinking yeah talking of those doors opening um while the square is obviously the 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 overriding thing in your books that links these women's lives they did you know you found that they inspired each other and they did have um some interactions themselves what can you say about what you found about Mm. that well that was one of the most interesting things about the research i think that you know what really brought all these women together was just this coincidence that at some point they had all been living in Mecklenburg Square but I guess as the more I researched the more I realized that it wasn't entirely a coincidence because Bloomsbury was a place where where these women were were drawn to because of the universities being nearby um publishing houses being nearby um and it being a place where it seemed possible to live a different sort of life some, something that features prominently in your work inevitably is is a room of one's own mm-hmm. so what kind of uh, freedom did these spaces and mm-hmm. in, in particular Bloomsbury offer, offer women at this time yeah I think when I started thinking about what had what had brought them all to Bloomsbury and what what might connect them I kept going back to a room of one's own and everything that Wolf says there about how important it is to have a space in a both a literal space in a house where no one's going to interrupt you while you work and also you know the metaphorical space of feeling validated in your work um knowing that um that you you know that you can do what you want to do and that 
you know, being a woman writer is not an oxymoron. <laughs> and, that, and I think all of these women were keen to stretch the boundaries of what they might be expected to do, um, which, of course, was also very difficult for them because they were all caught in this bind between the intellectual fulfillment that they were all guarded very closely and kind of emotional fulfillment. And I think particularly in Dorothy Sayers' story is quite moving in that way, I think, because she is completely determined to be a writer um, and to finish her book. But during this year, she was also involved in a relationship with a slightly older man who was also a writer who really didn't think much of her work. It's pretty apparent from her later letters to him, which are really poignant. Um, and I think it was a time for her, which in fact she then is a is a real theme of a lot of her later books, including her amazing 1936 novel, Gordy Knight, um, in which her character, Harriet Vane, who lives in Mecklenburg Square, um, has to try and work out whether she can accept the marriage proposal of the great detective Lord Peter Whimsey and whether it would be whether it's even possible for her to maintain her independence and her freedom whilst also getting married and I think this this fight for independence is a really interesting one because um I think you you write particularly when writing about um HD Hilda Doolittle um she's been viewed a lot inevitably through the men in her life mm. um when historians have written about her yeah. you mentioned Ezra Pound you mentioned D.H. Lawrence um how how do you approach writing these women, you know, as in, it might be a silly question, but ha, as individuals focusing on when, when so many historical sources are inevitably um, perhaps viewed through the men in their lives? Mm, yeah, I think that was definitely particularly the case with HG. She's seen as, yeah, Pound's fiancée, Aldington's wife. She's often seen as Lawrence's muse in a way that really doesn't bear out in much of the historical record. I think there was quite an early biography of Lawrence which um, which read her novel Bid Me to Live so autobiographically that it assumed that she was must have been the model for Lady Chatterley and that possibly Lawrence was the father of her daughter, Perdita. Um, and later she had analysis with Freud and she's often um, seen in that context as well. Um, but it was interesting writing about this period um, because it's in a way it's the story of her kind of leaving this quite traditional setup where she found herself put into the position of of sort of abandoned wife which really didn't match with the way that she was conceiving of herself in her as a writer in her own right and she had when she and Aldington got married I think they very much conceptualized their relationship as one of equals of you know, two poets working alongside each other. Um, but after she left the square, she moved to Cornwall and that's where she met Briar, um, who then became her partner for the, the rest of her life. And they wrote to each other every day when they went together. And Briar um, helped bring up Perdita, HD's daughter, um, and was a really, really crucial um, person in the rest of HD's life who managed who for whom hd's work was completely paramount and she perdita wrote quite a moving memoir about um briar sort of insisting that you know her mother needed time to write and that there were times when she just couldn't be interrupted and i think that was finding a relationship where where that was understood was really crucial for HD and yeah and yeah there was a, an interesting link between uh, Virginia Woolf and Jane Ham Harrison mm -hmm. as well 
yeah, there were some interesting connections between some of the women themselves. Um, Virginia Woolf met Jane Harrison um, quite on early on in her career and was quite inspired by her example. And in fact, Jane Harrison appears as a figure in Room of One's Own as an example of the kind of pioneering woman that Virginia Woolf is saying that, you know, we could have more of if we allowed women the time and space to write, which I think was very much evident in Jane Harrison's own story. It wasn't until she was invited back to Newnham, um, the Women's College in Cambridge, later on in her life that she began to write the books that really made her name, that when she was living, you know, in kind of rented, sort of going between different lodgings and travelling around the country giving lectures, she just didn't really have the time to sit down and concentrate on a work like her prolegomena to Greek religion, which is huge and... Um, I was always looking when I was researching this book for connections between the women, both thematically and, you know, any times that they did meet or overlap. And there were some really fascinating overlaps. Um, I found when I was at Cambridge University Library, I found Eileen Power's address book and I obviously looked for all of the others and I found Dorothy Sayers listed and was so intrigued because I couldn't think quite how they would have met. I knew that they were both involved at the BBC and... Dorothy says later on in life had um, wrote more historical plays in particular, so I sort of wondered. Um, but then at Wheaton College in Illinois, which is where Dorothy says papers are, along with lots of the other Inklings papers, um, I found a letter from Eileen Power to Dorothy Sayers. They'd clearly been introduced at a party and started talking about um, what Sayers was currently working on, which I think was Palestine in the first century AD. And um, Eileen Power had sent her a copy of a book which she thought would be useful to Sayers. And she added, it was such a pleasure to meet you at the end, which I just thought was a really nice example of this kind of recognition between them. Um, they were two you know, women scholars meeting as professional women and helping each other out in that way. It seemed a nice encapsulation of what the book's about. And, and did you find any other odd links while you were travelling in these women's footsteps? <laughs> I found if quite a few. At some point it felt like my life was <laughs> sort of becoming the book in a strange way. I went to Cornwall to... Um, to look at the house where HD had stayed with um, a man called Cecil Gray after she left Mecklenburg Square. Um, and I was booking a room to stay in nearby and found a nice little farmhouse um, near the village of Zenor. Um, and as I was reading Virginia Woolf's diaries later that evening, I came across a passage where she said, um, I'm in a cottage out on the Cornish moors and I'm writing this with a pen lent to me by the landlady Mrs Berryman and I just had an email from a Mrs Berryman confirming my stay and I wrote back to her and said did you know that did you meet Virginia Woolf and she said that would have been her husband's grandmother um so it feels like you know the ghosts are out there <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Both Power and Harrison were so keen to be seen as, as professional women that, in a way, perhaps burning a lot of their more personal papers was a pretty deliberate act to make sure that they were going to be taken seriously in the future as professionals, as historians. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. 
Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with your no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com forward slash guarantees. I'm interested about um, the sources because while you write that Virginia Woolf, um, probably the most well-known name in your book, um, her life is, is there's a lot of sources for it. Um, some of the other women, um, there were challenges, you know, difficulties of burned papers or vanished correspondences. Mm. Um, how did that affect what you found out about mm. these women? Well, the difficulty of the book, I suppose, is trying to make the chapters balanced when for Virginia Woolf, you've got all of her letters and diaries are published and, you know, you can put together what she was doing every day pretty much of this year, which is hugely helpful, though, of course, that brings out its own questions about the way she was constructing herself quite carefully, particularly in her diary, which she did anticipate would be read and possibly published. Um, HD was a different sort of problem because she wrote about this period in fiction across her life. Um, she wrote several different novels where she took the events of this year and put them in different contexts and had different kind of emphasis on different events and included some different characters who don't occur in other versions of the narrative. And she did a historical version set in a Roman army camp. Um, she did one in which Aldington really doesn't appear very much at all. And that's about these two relationships with women that she had before and after him and then there are other versions where it's all about the breakdown of this marriage um and there's one much later book bid me to live which she went back to after her analysis with freud when he suggested that what really she needed to do in order to get over this writer's block that she'd come to him about was go back to this period in mecklenburg square which he thought held the key to untangling a lot of her sort of psychic drama but then working with those novels it's i mean it's really fascinating um to compare them and to try to carve a kind of path between them but um it's difficult because she's not the only one who wrote novels about this time dh lawrence um john cornos um who's a, another friend of hers who in fact is also the man that dorothy l says <laughs> had this difficult relationship with um which i think is a total coincidence i can't think of two people much more different than hd and says 
but there was there was a huge ream of letters um i think from aldington to hd and from her to him which got left in the basement of 44 mecklenburg square when they all dispersed and um someone remembers them being burnt and eileen power and Jane Harrison also, there were, um, a lot of their more personal papers were destroyed. Jane Harrison made a huge bonfire after she left Cambridge in 1921. Um, so loads of material which would have been fascinating relating to her has gone. Um, and it's difficult to, to make up for that. But I suppose both of them, both Power and Harrison, were so keen to be seen as, as professional women that in a way, perhaps burning a lot of their more personal papers was a pretty deliberate act to make sure that they were going to be taken seriously in the future as professionals, as historians, rather than have people like me mind their uh, papers for you know juicy details about their love lives. Well, can we talk a little bit more about power then? Because she is, is such a fascinating figure in your book. Um, well, one of the things I found most interesting about her was looking into the broadcasts that she made for the BBC, um, often with her younger sister Rhoda um they were invited onto the BBC quite early on in the BBC's programming um during the 30s there was a series um of broadcasts for children which were beamed into schools across the country and Eileen Power who'd who'd been a lecturer and researcher at LSE for some time really took up the challenge to deliver her research to children because I think she thought that it was absolutely crucial that children should be taught a world history not British history she was very insistent on that she was quite involved in campaigning for the League of Nations um, and she really believed that the only way to prevent war in the future was to teach history that wasn't about wars and wasn't about countries being better than other countries it was about emphasizing what we have in common and teaching you know the history of of the east in tandem with the history of the west and a lot of her own more academic research focused on trade routes she was particularly interested in china um, and one of her last books or which came out of some lectures she delivered at oxford in 1940 um is about the world trade um which is usually i think seen as england's kind of great triumph in the sort of 13th century um but she was keen to emphasize what an international collaboration this all was how is her work recognized or is it today mm. so much of her work during the 30s i think was to do with kind of public engagement and she wrote a lot for um for more mainstream newspapers and journals and did lots of lecturing and did these bbc broadcasts and did a lot of teaching um which i guess means that you know that work is a bit intangible because it i think she will have influenced and affected a whole generation of people who will have grown up listening to her but that legacy you know can't be quantified in quite the same way and she died very suddenly in um, 1940 when she was only in her early 50s and so she didn't go on to to continue publishing and she was married to a historian called Michael Poston um, who had started off as her research assistant and they collaborated very closely through the 30s really um, and he got a job just quite 
soon before she died at Cambridge. Um, and I think after the war, the sorts of methodology that they had been developing at the LSE with their colleagues through the years really came to fruition and Michael Boston went on and had a very distinguished career but Eileen Power's name tended to fade away Um, and so now she worked also very very closely with R.H. Tawney who also lived in Mecklenburg Square they were neighbours and really close friends and colleagues at the LSE and they ran seminars together um, a lot Um, and his reputation obviously has has thrived and he has a blue plaque in the square Um, but But not one for Eileen Power yet (laughs) No, not yet. But I think she absolutely deserves to be remembered for her historical work. And Mecklenburg Square, um, there is something that happens at number 37 each year um, mm. in Virginia Woolf's uh, study that mm. was was likely Virginia Woolf's study. In 1940, the square was bombed um, and... So a lot of the houses were subsequently destroyed and rebuilt as Good Enough College, which now takes up um, most of the square. Um, but the archivist there, when I was doing some research in their archives, told me that they've worked out pretty much exactly where Virginia Woolf's study would have been at number 37. And now each year that room is given to a woman student um, and they leave a copy of A Room of One's Own <laughs> waiting for her which is a really nice way to continue the square's history as a place of, of pioneering women. That was Francesca Wade. Her book, Square Haunting, Five Women, Freedom and London Between the Wars, is published by Faber in the UK and is out now, and Crown Publishing in the US from the 7th of April. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Monday when Rachel Herman will be discussing food in the American Revolution. Hey.